0: Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Squarespace and Eero. Liftoff is a
1: fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello.
0: Hello, Mr. Jason Snell.
1: We are back for more space stuff on this podcast because that is what we talk about. Space stuff. Space stuff.
0: There is no shortage of space stuff this week. You
1: know what? Uh, one thing that comes from space is satellite imagery of the Earth. That's one of the fun things about space. Is space also tells us things about ourselves because we put satellites up there and they look back at us.
0: And they say, "Hi, friends." Yeah, and so, uh, you and I
1: both are, are using a new piece of software for on our Macs now, which is called Downlink which is uh like puts uh, satellite live live satellite views on your desktop.
0: Yeah, it's super cool. So this is written by Anthony over at Main Engine Cutoff, which is a great blog and podcast uh, covering the space and space in space and the space industry. Download like, like I said, it's a Mac app, it's a free Mac app. There's a link in the show notes and you can tell it to pull data from Goes East, Goes West and a couple other uh sort of real-time imagery sources and it will change your Mac desktop i've mine set to every 20 minutes i think you can set it to every hour and it's kind of fun you see your desktop a few times a day and you can see the uh the the sun and the and night slowly yeah. moving over the the planet it's really cool
1: yeah it's pretty great i have uh, he just uh, added in another data source uh today as we record this which is the west coast view um from Go's, so i've got a like a kind of cropped view of the of the west that's view cool. that's got uh california and uh hawaii sort of uh, that's cool. on opposite sides of my monitor it's pretty great yeah. and i can I'm see all that fog that's east, right over uh, my uh, over my sky right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm using the east full desk and uh it's very clever and uh I, I sent some a couple minor suggestions to him uh for the app itself so hopefully uh, they get they get in there, but yeah, super impressive. It's free if you run a Mac. Like, what are you doing? This needs to be this yeah. needs to be your wallpaper. Yeah, it's beautiful,
1: right? Like, I mean, the, the pictures people put pictures like from space on their desktops. Mm-hmm. I have for years anyway, but to have it be a live view where you can look at where you are and say, you know, there's a bunch of clouds over that part, or there's it's clear there, or whatever, and you can see big storms and the all the all the moisture in the tropics, and you can watch that the, the you know, darkness kind of creeping in in the, late in the day. Uh, and this morning, I was watching, and I was like, "Wake up, Hawaii!" <laughs> and they got their uh, they got their sunrise there. So yeah, it's pretty great.
0: All righty. So uh, we've we've got that, but we've got some other mm. pre flight checklist items. And let's start with uh, the SpaceX accident a couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah, we recorded early and then had to re-record uh, a different part because of the anomaly that happened with the uh, with the Crew Dragon during testing. And uh, it turns out all those rumors were true. They finally disclosed that that, uh, that Crew Dragon that actually went to the International Space Station was destroyed in the explosion that happened uh, when they were testing the Super Draco thrusters in the emergency escape system
0: and we spoke a little bit about how it is a they use a solid fuel and they're kept separate and when they mix they ignite so it's a little bit different than uh, some of the other components that SpaceX uses like on the Falcon 9 but in the press briefing said they basically confirmed you know that video was floating around they didn't say that video was legit but it seems like it was, yeah. Uh, seems like it was. His The language was uh, the capsule is destroyed. So clearly something went terribly wrong. There was uh, uh, some discussion online about uh, the composite over at pressure vessels. So these are the components inside that actually hold the fuels. They're at extremely high pressure. And SpaceX have actually had issues with high-pressure vessels before in the Falcon 9. And there was some conversation, I guess, that this could be the issue here with the Crew Dragon. But uh, SpaceX said that they believe that that's not the issue. That they, they didn't say what is the issue. They probably don't know yet. But it seems like they've been able to rule that out already. This is going to be an ongoing investigation, though, for several more weeks, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, NASA and SpaceX are working together on it. And uh, it's... Um it's it's a tough one but it has to be done right because this is a it's an important safety system and they need to get to the bottom of and then and then figure out how to fix it and that's just part of the process of when you have an accident so it's frustrating because it pushes everything back in terms of timelines but it's uh this is uh what has to be done.
0: Mhm. There was a little bit of um let's call it s- space policy drama. Mhm. <laughs> So uh Alabama Senator Richard Shelby who we've talked about before is a extreme um, critic of SpaceX and other private companies but in particular he doesn't like SpaceX and right he, because
1: let's be clear it's because they build uh, NASA built rockets in Alabama uh,
0: yes in his in his state yeah. and if NASA doesn't build the SLS or doesn't do other things then that hurts his home state which I understand right. like his job is to look out for his people like I get it mm-hmm. but uh he he made a comment about the investigation you know this is NASA and SpaceX working side by side and and Shelby kind of complained well like can you really have like independent conclusions if you're doing that jointly with the provider and like I see what he's saying and I think there's there would be merit to it if NASA investigators and SpaceX investigators weren't extremely professional. And it, by all accounts from the other previous incidents that the SpaceX has had, they know what they're doing. And so I, I kind of read his comments as Shelby just being cranky because yeah. that's kind of what Shelby does. But it, I think it was interesting to at least bring it up. They are working together. But this is how these things are done because SpaceX knows the engineering in that spacecraft better than NASA. And NASA knows it well, too. You know, these things are developed in tandem, but you need the the resources and the engineering and you need the access that SpaceX investigators will have within the company to do this properly. And so I don't raise an eyebrow at the way they're moving forward with this, but I kind of wanted just to bring Shelby's point of view up at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's a joint investigation. NASA and SpaceX are working together. I'm sure if NASA lost confidence in SpaceX, they would do what they need to do Uh, but SpaceX is their partner, basically contractor in a way like they, they they're on this project together. And so the investigation is a joint project and that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. So yeah, I looked at this and I thought, you know, it seems like a reasonable argument, but it actually seems more like some Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, by somebody who's got an axe to grind, which is Mm -hmm. politics, I guess. But, uh, that's, I, I rolled my eyes pretty hard at this. Yeah. Uh, I have a pre-flight checklist item that is about garbage. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's a good story that we'll put in the show notes about um, uh, the fallout literally from uh, a Russian launch site that uh, the, the Russians used for a long time. That is called the uh, Placetsk Cosmodrome, which is in uh, northern Russia. And this story is about the people who basically go out into the countryside in icy, snowy northern Russia and uh find discarded rocket boosters because uh from a lot of points in Russia's space program, the uh, you know, they're not launching over ocean, they're launching over land, and uh those stages just fall to Earth. And my understanding is that in in you know, uh, remote location whether it's uh, the, the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan or whether it's the the uh, Placetsk Cosmodrome, that, uh, you know, there's not a lot out there. But still, I have this thought of, like, uh, just, well, we're going to drop rocket parts that are covered in toxic chemicals onto the land and whatever. It's fine. And then people go out there and apparently, like, cut them up and sell them for scrap or stuff. And there's potentially bad chemicals there. It's not good. It's not good. And I was thinking about that story uh, when I saw a bunch of things go around on Twitter about how China, and I've mentioned this on this podcast before, China also launches its rockets from a landlocked space center that uh, just drops Rocket parts over inhabited areas Ugh. from time to time, and there's a video. There are a couple of videos, uh, but there's one that uh, I found on Twitter that we'll put in the show notes. Where it's like uh, there's um, people and buildings and stuff, and uh, some hills, and in the background you can see a uh, a, a rocket stage just uh, falling to Earth in the background off of the off of the road. And um, I don't have a, a larger point here, I guess, other than. Um, this is not great. And I know that Russia is moving their launch site to uh, ultimately to a new location that I think is, uh, that I think it has a water trajectory. And I know China has a fourth launch site that they're building that, uh, that there, that is on the coast as well. Cause ideally what you want to do is put these over, um, over an ocean where there's nobody out there to, uh, have parts fall off. But, uh, this has definitely happened, in the last uh, few years in China, a lot where these things keep coming downrange, and and uh, it's not uh, it's not great, it's not great. Mm-hmm. Even if people aren't getting hurt, it, you are you have like toxic things that are uh, that are blown up. It's uh, it's I don't I I anyway. So I just thought thought this is why we talk about. Um, where the launches happen in uh, for the in the U.S. it's from Florida or it's from Southern California, and the Southern California ones are launching to the south where there's nothing, uh, yeah, but just but water. Pacific Ocean, and then from Florida out there on Cape Canaveral you can launch um, to you know pretty much any direction except west, and you which nobody wants to launch to because that's not the direction of the Earth's rotation. Uh, that uh, is uh, going to be over nothing but the Atlantic, so that's uh, that's it
0: in his uh, tweet thread Andrew Jones has a a photo of chinese guy in a house and it's got and he's got basically the you know the cone of a rocket motor in his in his house, in where his it house fell through.
1: with the rubble all around him yeah
0: and andrew makes the point that you know people are warned but only sometimes evacuated but even if people are told that doesn't mean people can just pack up and leave right they've got jobs and families and uh and it doesn't do anything for property damage you know if, if one of these things come comes blasting through your roof into your kitchen it's uh you're in a really bad potentially dangerous situation even if you're not home like you said these things contain you know remnants of extremely toxic fuel yeah it, it's these countries have to do better there's no way around it yeah so
1: uh basically bottom line uh it's not great don't do it and i i think in the long run china and russia are both uh moving in that direction but they're not they're not there yet and it's a lot of it is because they don't you know they they built these launch sites in secure locations that they completely controlled and that was the, right. in the cold war especially that was the purpose of doing that because mm-hmm. these were potential nuclear missile targets because they were potential potential nuclear missile launch sites and so that was a calculation uh, that was that was made and it's not great and I think they know it's not great but they they haven't uh, had any way to resolve it yet it's maybe maybe later
0: it's not good. yeah yeah having them in inland made them less susceptible to you know countries like us <laughs> coming over and and yeah, messing with them And so. there's
1: been a lot of growth in china too i wonder if that's part of it too is that maybe there are more people out in these remote areas than were out there uh, back then and that's part of it too is like there didn't used to be a highway here because yeah. there was nothing out here but that was 30 years ago and now there is mm-hmm. a highway for the people to watch, stop pull over to the side and watch the rocket boosters fall and explode and, and also, I guess presumably one last thing about this is presumably they are also working on what, um, what is being worked on here in the U.S., which is a lot of this stuff, you know, the economics are better if you can make reusable boosters that land themselves, right? So that's, that's the other way you solve this problem is not just if there's still accidents, which is why, shoot, you know, shooting these things off over water is better because of the accidents. But you can mitigate yeah. a lot of this by having things that return to a landing site and land rather than just crash
0: into somebody's living room. It's a good point. Re- reusability solves all sorts of problems, yeah, really. it's good for that guy's living room. <laughs> it is. Man, uh, it's uh, it's a bad day. All right, we've got a lot of Moon 2024 stuff to talk about, but before we do that, I want to tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea. And you can have that website hosted at a unique domain name. You can have it looking spiffy with award winning templates. So maybe you want to create an online store or a portfolio, or maybe you're a writer and you want to start a blog. Squarespace is an all in one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. And there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about no upgrades are needed. You don't have to worry about becoming a server admin. Squarespace has got all that sort of stuff covered. If you run into questions, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. Their system allows you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and you can pick from their award-winning templates that are all beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Over the years, I've set a lot of people up with Squarespace sites, from nonprofits to new businesses, people who just have something they need to get out online. Squarespace is the easiest way to do it. For a wide range of projects. If you're just a little informational website, it's great for that. If you've got a blog or a podcast, great for that as well. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. It's time, everybody, for the SLS segment. Space Launch System segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. (sighs) SLS segment. Are you okay? You need uh, yeah, a, a, yeah. a breather?
1: I decided to hold that note over your whole uh, thing. It was good. It was good. I feel like we're really getting there with the SLS segment now.
0: <laughs> Should do it more often. Mm. We'll probably will honestly be doing it more often. Like. Our, also, we're going to be doing it for our entire lives, Steve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we need to uh, to catch up a little bit with our friend, old friend, the SLS. Mm. There is part of the testing of the new rocket called uh, the Green Run and the green run is a test of the rocket's core stage. Remember, that has four slightly modified shuttle main engines at the base of it. Yeah. And the green run is taking that whole thing, taking it to Stennis, velcroing it down to the, I think they just use velcro, velcroing <laughs> no, it so. down. Tape. Yeah. Yeah. Gaffer, gaff tape. Just hmm right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Space you tape.
1: F- yeah. You, t- you, f- you tape down the rocket and then fire it off and just watch it go.
0: And the uh, the the reason this test is important is all, all four firing at once, but it fires for the entire duration of the ascent to orbit. So these shuttle engines – well, actually, some of these have were used in the shuttle era. Eventually, we're going to run out of those, and there'll be new ones. But the, uh, the test of all four running for the whole time is an important step. NASA has been preparing for this test – for almost ten years, modifying test stands at Stennis Space Center, which is in Mississippi It's not actually not too far from me that is uh that's a big deal to be able to bring this new vehicle in and do this testing. they've spent two hundred and thirty million dollars so far uh, renovating and modifying the b2 test stand there so a lot of work has gone into this, but uh, then we get to this conversation in recent months of speeding. SLS up, getting to EM1, the the non-crew test flight as quickly as possible. And one thing that has been floated is skipping over the green run test, uh, because if you, you look at the money, but more importantly, you look at the time. So having the SLS assembled, or the you know the the core stage assembled, getting it to Stennis, setting it up, testing it, breaking it down, getting it back is anywhere between six to nine months of work. And uh, if you're the person with the red pen in the calendar, six to nine months with a strike of a pen seems like a pretty good deal. But as you may imagine, a lot of people have strong feelings about skipping this test. So NASA's Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel expressed concerns about this. Because EM-2 will have a crew, they want to do a full green run test to to have these things firing the whole time at least twice (laughs) before a a crew gets on board em2 and uh, nasa itself hasn't really commented on the green run yet there have been some comments here and there from various people but no official word yet if it's cut or not but in looking at the road to launch for em1 this is a big milestone and skipping over it certainly would buy them time but it, it could it could mask issues that would show up at a launch
1: yeah, it's I get the feeling that what's happening right now is um they are going through right there's the every they say well it's going to take us all this time to do the SLS and then the people who are in charge now and who are trying to push the moon exploration stuff forward look at look at it and say this is ridiculous surely you could do this faster and then everybody digs into it and I feel like we're reaching the point where everybody digs into it and then comes back to the the people who asked and says, well, no, actually we can't. <laughs> like, right? Like, that's what it feels like to me is somebody who doesn't know all the details, looks at it and says, this is ridiculous. You need to move this up. And then they go away and come back and say, no, this is why it... it it makes sense. This is why it is this way. And uh, that's going to be something to watch because there's a strong desire on the part of the administration and the NASA administrator to make this stuff happen fast. And you're going to have the other side that's pushing back and saying, you know, it takes as long as it takes. And this is how long it takes. And it would be unsafe to do it otherwise.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I see a world where where they get to skip this test. I just, I can't, I would imagine that it will happen. But I don't know. Well, I mean, you risk
1: if if it if if think back to that uh, SpaceX failure, right? Like the cost of EM1 is so enormous. And what you risk is by not doing the green run is not finding something that causes the entire EM1 thing to blow up, Mm -hmm. basically. And so you're you're cutting corners. You're putting EM2 at risk because you're only going to have one real test of it as EM-1, and you're also increasing the risk on EM-1. And if EM-1 has a bad result, then EM-2 is really not going to happen anytime soon. So yeah. <laughs> it, it, it seems like uh, a a gamble. And then also just NASA's culture, I think a part of NASA's culture especially is this idea that when we start to uh, get excited about hitting these deadlines and start worrying less about safety is when people die. And, you, you know, you would hate to be in a situation where there are senior administrator type people who are trying to push a program forward while all the safety people at the organization say no, because what you've got there is you've got potentially the leadership of the organization trying to um, devalue the safety people. And that's, that's, we know what happens when that kind of thing happens at NASA.
0: I mean, and I don't have a crystal ball, but if they were to skip this, and something did happen with em1 which again is uncrewed but if that goes wrong the people who were against the sls that's a whole lot of ammunition and and into their arguments
1: it is it and
0: is. you got to think from like the risk perspective and from the if it does go wrong what happens perspective this test is pretty important because mm-hmm. it if it, if it, if they had a failure and you know we don't obviously don't want that to happen but if they did having it in the context of it was on the test stand this is what the test stand is for right we are still in the development phase that's bad but it is not nearly as bad as the entire world watching the country launch its new brand new heavy lift rocket and it going wrong then like politically that that could be a blow that this program would not survive. And you got to think that's going into that decision as well.
1: Well, We'll see. We'll see. Now, this is all being pre- uh, precipitated by the Moon by 2024 plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's probably worth updating that now. Um, you know, nothing is nailed down. Not a big surprise. Nothing is nailed down. But there are at least some details emerging Uh, April 30th, uh, Bill Gerstenmaier, the Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations at NASA, uh, gave a presentation to the Space Studies Board and Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board and uh, said that hitting this goal to get a human on the moon in 2024 would require three launches of SLS, um, a heavy lift rocket and Orion spacecraft, starting with EM-1, followed by EM-2. And then EM three would be the lunar lunar landing mission. So that quick, like that's what EM three is for, apparently, because they've been kind of wondering about that. Would be lunar landing mission, and uh, okay, right? Like we just talked about SLS. This is this is kind of the heart of it, isn't it? Which is it really requires SLS to have um, these three missions carry off by twenty twenty four. Seems like a lot.
0: Seems <laughs> it seems like a lot. So the um. This is uh, going on, this conversation about launch schedules and testing everything. Well, that's only part of the hardware required, right? We've spoken a couple of times about the lunar side of things. And so uh, NASA's Next Space Technologies for Exploration Partnerships, the Next Step program, Mm. uh, which is a word that I, as someone who mainly covers technology, and NASA is like hijacked. Next up, it's just like very confusing in my mind. But it's
1: recycling. It's it's uh you know acronym recycling.
0: Before the idea was that the ascent, descent, and transfer stages of a lunar lander could be done separately, and then they'd be like integrated by NASA later. And that has been tweaked to say uh, NASA is now looking for input on a ascent, descent, and transfer stages, effectively an all-in-one. Mm-hmm product, if you will, like an all-in-one solution from a uh, a partner, which makes more sense, I think, given the tight timeline, if you can go to Boeing or whoever and say, yeah, this is we, this one spacecraft can do everything you need, get down to the moon, get back, transfer, all that's one, in one solution. And that just makes a lot of sense to me. And we still haven't really seen what these companies are going to pitch here. I mean, there's been talk of of companies playing in this area, but this is still sort of like a big fuzzy, like, yes, we should have a lunar lander. (laughs) There's not a lot of detail here yet either.
1: Yeah. There's also, I've heard definitely in the background, all these potential contractors are working on their lunar lander concepts, right? But, and I like, I appreciate the uh, specificity here of saying like really we want an all-in-one proposal because we're not going to mix and match we want we want a proposal that's capable of doing all of these things I think that makes sense um, I know that I've I've seen some stories about how um, you know there are thoughts about whether it is something that is reusable and if it's reusable uh, how is it reusable and it may be that by 2024 that target date having a reusable lander is going to be less. Of a possibility, you know, as we've talked about in our um, in our Apollo episodes, the Apollo lunar module was not reusable. It was, you know, you leave the uh, descent stage on the lunar surface and then mm-hmm. ascend with just the ascent stage, which is the people in it, and uh, that is. Easier to do in some ways, I think, but uh, in the long run, if you're going to have people in a gateway space station and you're going to have them going down to the moon, what you'd really like is to be able to take the vehicle down and land it, and then take it back up to gateway and refuel it. And uh, the, but there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into that, right? Because reusable spacecraft on Earth are reusable because we take them and we refurb them here on earth and then launch them again and that's not the case if they're going to be at docked on a space station you're talking about something that you can you know basically launch and land and launch again and then reload and then do it again without any that's that's kind of unprecedented so um you know lot, lots of questions about how the long and short term of a lunar lander will uh, will work out
0: here so many questions in the 2024 plan. Mm-hmm. That's what we're saying today. Yeah, There's still lots of questions. Yeah. <laughs> this is the theme recently. We spoke when this first happened about the lunar gateway. And the idea has been, well, you go to the gateway and you, you go from the gateway down to the surface and then back up to the gateway and then come back in Orion. And that gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of where you can go uh, – down to the lunar surface, you know. There, there's a whole side conversation that we've talked about before about different locations, parts of the moon that could be extremely interesting to go explore. But there was a conversation we had, some of the people had, like, "Well, is is Gateway actually needed for that? You didn't have that in Apollo, and if you're trying to hit 2024, maybe you go direct to the surface, and then the Gateway is there for later, you know, longer, more flexible missions." Uh, doing what it does best as far as giving us a wider reach on the moon. And that's maybe not necessary for EM-3, you know, maybe not necessary for this first visit. Uh, again, going back to this, uh, this April 30th event, uh, it seems like NASA is still moving ahead uh, with the gateway, but in, in basically like the, the minimal viable gateway, you know, this, the, the fewest things you need to have a, a tiny um, cislunar space station including power and propulsion, of course, and then some sort of docking and habitation module. So this is not going to be a wide-ranging, large, sprawling complex. This is going to be small and going to be very focused on a place to be before and after we go to the surface of the moon. So uh, this seems to still be in the works. There is um, selection going on now as far as hardware, uh, the, it would need to be launched or potentially launched by 2022, and this is when we come to a very strange PDF, Jason. Uh, as far as PDFs go, this is an odd one. <laughs> and that's saying something. There's a lot of weird PDFs out there. That, that's true. Maybe I spoke too broadly, but uh, this PDF isn't is entitled "Why Gateway," and uh, there's a-, a link to it in the notes. It's not signed. It's not on letterhead. There's no contact information on it. There's actually some errors and typos in it. So it seems like it was rushed out or maybe not meant to get out into the public, but it's here. We have it. And it is. Um, it starts by reiterating the phase one, phase two idea that was pitched from the beginning of this. Phase one, get to the moon and establish a presence. And phase two is make that more sustainable, which, is, of course, is a, a huge part of this, even though the SLS is not reusable having Orion, having other vehicles that you can, you know, like like you were talking about the the lunar descent and ascent stages, being able to reuse those over and over, making this sustainable so you don't have to drag a bunch of hardware with you every time. So it talks about that. And then this PDF basically makes the argument that Gateway is necessary for, for phase one. And it, it goes into details about the Orion service module, about SLS itself, um, about kind of where NASA is and the different elements at the core of the Gateway, including, I mean, honestly, contract in a matter of weeks, according to this PDF, for some of these elements. And it it makes the argument that Gateway is important, not only for phase two, not only for that, that vision we all have of we have astronauts on the Lunar Gateway circling the moon all the time and they're just going down to the surface, like, you know, you step out to the corner store, like that dream of a sustainable human presence on the moon, clearly Gateway's necessary for that. But this paper, this little five-page document, makes the argument, and I think a relatively compelling argument, that Gateway is necessary for phase one. So I don't know if this came out of a team or an individual working on this or, you know, just kind of got out or it was leaked or something. But uh, it's an interesting insight into how some people are thinking about Gateway, even under this new deadline of 2024.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, there's a lot of clarity in this document about how, uh, you know, I like the practicality of it, which is like a lot of the stuff's already designed and isn't going to get us to the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a space station design, you've got uh, the Orion design, and the Orion can dock at the space station. So this is all good. And then you build a landing vehicle and you build it. And that's a new piece. Um, and then you can you can supply with various vehicles that you can supply um, gateway and you can send people there on Orion and then you can send a lunar lander there and then the people can go in Orion to the gateway and get in the lander and go down. And It's like basically you've got a bunch of pieces already. This is so aggressive a timeline that we got to use our existing pieces. And so then you've got to have this other stuff. And then I like how it then says, and then for phase two, what you get is, I mean, bottom line is it's way more efficient and effective to have a a a station in orbit around the moon that can relay messages from the surface, that can provide a habitat for people. Uh, When they're changing from one spaceship to another that can be resupplied elsewhere, Uh, you know, instead of having it be that every time you want to send somebody to the moon, they've got to launch in something that also has a lander on it and then take Mm -hmm. it there and land and then come back and rendezvous and then go back like the whole Apollo thing the idea is gateway makes it much more modular in the long term and in the short term it lets us use the parts that we already have that we need to have if we're going to do it in the short term so it's a it's a mysterious document but i feel like we've been asking why gateway for a long time and this is a very cogent argument about why
0: absolutely and and in the mix of this and the document touches on it but you have the fact that the extended upper stage and later blocks of the SLS Aren't going to be here for EM two or three. They're they're those things continue to slip. And right. if you have uh, if you have a gateway and you have a lunar descent ascent spacecraft there, you, you don't have to drag it with you, and you don't have to deal with the weight and the the mass of getting that in orbit every time. Which opens up other possibilities of things to bring with you to this lunar space into the surface, as far as science or experimentation or things to bring back it's uh it's i think it's while it's weird i think you're right i think it it does offer clarity in this and brings up a lot of points that uh, i think are well considered and and honestly points that you know and i argue on the side of well maybe you don't need it for this um and i see their argument that even for phase one there are uh there are benefits to having that there even if it's basic in the beginning
1: yep 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 um I think the other so the what what does this landing look like is the other question here, right? Mm-hmm. Like what is that? And and it sounds like it's Apollo Eleven, essentially, which is minimal first landing. That the idea there is to say this is a start. Here we are. Um, you know, presumably the scenario here is that the lander that has yet to be designed would be launched separately and attached to gateway and then the people would come in in Orion and then they switch and they would go down and they would then return to the station all that that's the that's the assumption here but it would be a fairly minimal thing this is not going to be like a lunar prospecting mission because again you have to constrain the landing mission so much in order to try and hit
0: this deadline so a lot of things to consider (laughs) <laughs> it's so complicated. Uh, one thing I
1: want to mention, just uh, in passing, a story that I read today that uh, we'll put in the show notes. Uh, the New Yorker did a long piece about the race to develop the moon. That's interesting, and in, to- in terms of talking about like different countries and different companies that are working on moon uh, technology stuff, and why it's uh, it suddenly captured people's imagination. And I'm sure some of it is that it's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, but sure. it does feel like the the moon is having a moment <laughs> where uh after fifty years from the first lunar landing, now our has advanced to the point where everybody's sort of like, okay, we need to be able to do stuff on the moon and sustain that. And it gets into some of the details of sort of like uh space race stuff about uh taking materials on the moon and staking out claims on the moon and what the legalities of it are and how the uh treaty that is currently in place to uh make sure that space is, is p- used peacefully can be opted out by anybody with a year's notice and how uh, tenuous it may be when, when we get into a land rush prospecting kind of scenario, which could happen later this century. So uh, interesting article. Uh, I'll, put it in the, uh, I'll put it in the show notes.
0: All right. We have some asteroid stuff to talk about, but let me tell you about our, our second sponsor. This episode is also brought to you by Eero. With Eero, you can build a Wi-Fi system perfectly tailored to your home. We live in a high-bandwidth world, and we need distributed systems to make sure that we get the best speeds available throughout our home. You know, not, not just in the living room, not just in the den, but in that creepy old bedroom at the end of the hall no one goes in. We want to make sure it has good Wi-Fi, too. And with Eero, you can install enterprise-grade Wi-Fi in your home in just a few minutes. It starts with a second-gen Eero device. It has three 5 GHz radios for increased speed and range. It sits flat on any surface and connects via Ethernet or wirelessly. And from there, you go out and you send out probes, Voyager space probes, of the Eero hmm. beacons. See, I'm trying to tie it together. Yeah, that's good. good. Very good. tie it, it together. Uh, these Eero beacons, they plug into the wall and they expand your Wi-Fi to reach every corner of your home. And it's all backed by something new called Eero Plus, which is designed to provide simple, reliable security to help defend all of the devices in your home against things like malware, phishing, and unsuitable content. Eero Plus can automatically tag sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, giving you powerful parental controls right at your fingertips. It includes ad-blocking functionality and help improve load times for websites that are full of those privacy-invading ad tracking bits, and it's possible to have Eero Plus check the sites you visit against databases of millions of unknown threats to prevent you from visiting anything malicious accidentally. Eero Plus even includes subscriptions to things like 1Password, bytes, and Encrypt.me. I recently set up a family member with an Eero setup. They were just using, you know, an old router they bought at a big box store probably eight or nine years ago. And it was fine when they were someplace smaller, but in their bigger house, it just didn't cut it. There were bedrooms. There were parts of the house that the Wi-Fi just didn't reach. They want to use it outside. No luck. And Eero let us provide the entire house out into the yard with really solid Wi-Fi. And it was easy to set up and, of course, nice and secure. So never think about Wi-Fi again. Get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Just go to Eero.com slash liftoff and at checkout, use the promo code liftoff. That's E E R O dot com slash liftoff and the code liftoff at checkout. My thanks to ER for their support of this show and Relay FM. Okay, let's talk about Doomsday. Doomsday preparation. <laughs> <laughs> Are you digging in the backyard now? Are you ready to go underground? <laughs> There's just water under there. I live by the water. It's not going to happen. It's going to be soggy. I don't have a basement. This is
1: why I don't have a basement. So what happens, <laughs> Stephen, what happens if uh, an asteroid hits us? What 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 can we do? Anything?
0: Um, nothing good. Nothing no. good's going to happen. But in case that happens, in case it seems like it's going to happen, NASA and other agencies... Uh, went through what is called the Planetary Defense Conference exercise. So this uh, recently took place and these organizations come together and they kind of go through an exercise saying, hey, it's it's 2027 and it seems like we're going to be hit by an asteroid. What do we do? And they walk through, uh, and you can go to the website in the show notes, the six days of this, through the decision making of, okay, how do we, deal with this? How do we respond? How do we prep people? Uh, how do we do everything from uh, the science end of it of monitoring it and seeing if we can deflect it all the way through like the press? Like how do you talk? How do you talk to an entire planet of people about something that's going to happen? Mm. Really Megaphone? pretty interesting exercise. It started with a uh, an asteroid that was going to, I believe, to hit Denver and they decided to try to deflect it and part of it broke off. And so then they know, oh, it's going to hit New York City which of course it is. I guess they pick the biggest areas because for, to make it more exciting or more scary, not real though. You know, sometimes I read these things. And I'm like, if you didn't know this was real and you just like walked by these people talking about this, you'd probably freak out. So not real, but it gives these government organizations uh, ways to build procedures and to develop processes to communicate with each other, communicate with the public and uh, everything from, you know, the press side to, like, evacuation procedures. You know, like, how do you evacuate New York City? Well, FEMA is there working on that because of this simulation. But we're safe, Jason, for now. No, Nothing's going to hit New York City oh, anytime soon. Okay. Well, thank goodness for that. So,
1: um, but I have a story that's a related, asteroid-related story. You ready okay. for it? Yes. It's something I'm not sure we've talked about before, but I'll just mention here since we're talking about it, which is there's a, a mission that's in the planning stages called DART, which it's an acronym double asteroid redirect test. That's a pretty good acronym. It's pretty good. It's, it's not bad. It's not bad. And then that, that is a, uh, a, a thing that rides with, uh, or, or goes, uh, in advance of, a uh, spacecraft from a uh, European space agency called Hera. And the idea here is to figure out, you know, lots of stories about, uh, space cowboy type people, uh, attacking asteroids that are going to hit the earth right there movies and things about that bruce willis has got his uh his uh armageddon movie and all that um can we deflect an asteroid could we move an asteroid could we hit it or steer it out of the way so it didn't uh smash into us and this is what dart is going to uh do as a part of what they call the asteroid impact and deflection assessment aida uh, mission uh so there's this asteroid called didymos that has a little tiny moon that is called Diddy Moon <laughs> seriously it's hilarious um and it, they're going they're oh, going to like take <laughs> dart which is this spacecraft and it is going to smash into Diddy Moon just as hard as it can and the idea here is that then uh Hera will come along and will observe what happened and the damage and all that but they think that dart should be able to change the um, speed of diddy moon by i think one percent and you know this is an experiment they're basically saying what if we shot an asteroid what could we do and we don't really know we only have theories so there is this plan in the works uh possibly by 2022 to try to smack uh a, a, the satellite of a larger asteroid and see what happens and get an idea of what the you know what the effect was and is it what we expected or is it not what we expected and uh i think that's an interesting uh, you know interesting little side project in addition to uh continuing our uh our kind of studying asteroids in in the solar system, so so yeah, so there's Didymus and Didymoon, there's uh, there's Aida, there's Dart, there's Hera, a lot of names going on here. But in the end, next decade may be not only when we return to the moon, but when we finally smash an asteroid with a spaceship to see what happens. Finally, it's the asteroids who are getting it from us, and not the reverse. Take that, asteroids!
0: Don't come around here anymore. Is what we're saying. That's right. Please, please don't come around here. no, no, no. <laughs> please don't do that. We've seen the test. It's not good. Denny Moon is the size of the great pyramid, a giza that's yeah, It's pretty good. It's an interesting uh way to think about it. I mean, look, planetary defense is a hugely important topic and one that I think i well i I don't know how much it makes the news because it it seems like out of out of everything these space agencies do, it seems kind of like the most um. I think the most science fiction in a way, I think because we've all seen movies that talk about this and like, oh yeah, like we'll just blow up an asteroid. It's like, well, we don't actually know how to do that. Like that's not a thing. And so this is step one in having a a proactive planetary defense system, as opposed to right now where it is mostly watching and tracking, which is very important. And they track thousands and thousands of, of, near earth objects. But if one were to stray Having some tools in our tool belt to, to deal with it uh, could be incredibly important one day. So this yeah. is important work, even yep. though it is weird and kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Diddy Moon. Diddy Moon. What did it ever do to us? I know. Well, it's going to be fine. Like,
1: again, 1%. Like, we're going to be like, finally, we're going to take it back to the moon of a much larger asteroid by altering its course by 1%. Yeah. That's where uh, we are right now. You got to start. You got to start, start humbly. Start small. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. <laughs> well,
1: I think that uh, I think that does it, Jason. Yeah, uh, but guess what, folks? Next week. Next week. Next fortnight, which is episode ninety nine. Strangely enough, not episode one hundred, which would have been perfect. But episode ninety nine, it's uh, it's Apollo ten, Apollo mm-hmm. ten. So we our our Apollo series resumes in a fortnight with the um. The big event before the big event. Uh, Interesting mission, Apollo 10. Uh, This is the one that if I had to sum it up right now as a teaser, I would say it's the one where they got very close to the surface of the moon and said, hey, we could take it down right now. (laughs) And they didn't because they were following orders and that would have been bad. But like very, very, very close to landing on the moon as a test for the actual moon landing. But that's next time.
0: Yep. I'm looking forward to talking about that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating mission. You've got the CSM is called Charlie Brown. So you ha- you, how could be you be mad about that? So lots yeah. of good stuff.
1: Yeah. And I guess Lucy put, pulled the football away from Charlie Brown. <laughs> the football was the moon.
0: Yeah. Well, the lunar module was Snoopy. They yeah. had There was mm-hmm. good branding in Apollo 10 is what I'm oh, saying. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. We're
0: going to get into it in two weeks. Yep. Until then, if you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about this week, you can do so on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 98. While you're there, you can uh, send us an email. There's a link there in the sidebar, or there's a link also to our Tumblr where we post interesting stories in between episodes and things that we can't talk about on the show uh, we share there. So check that out. You can find us on Twitter. Jason is Snell and you can find me there as ismh. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.